Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Richard Clarkin, an actor you may have seen in George A. Romero's Land of the Dead, in Daniel Coburn's You Are Here, in Michael Das's Goon, or in a recurring role as Chief Constable Davis on Murdoch Mysteries. Most recently, he's had key roles opposite Sarah Kolaski and Adam Garnett Jones's Great Great Great, opposite Tori Higginson in Ordinary Days, and opposite Stuart Hughes in the feature film adaptation of The Drawer Boy, which opens in Toronto this Friday, November 23rd at the Carlton Cinemas. Richard picked The Pledge, Sean Penn's 2001 drama starring Jack Nicholson as a retired police detective obsessed with finding a murderer of young girls. An adaptation of Friedrich Dürrenmatt's novella, which was itself based on the author's screenplay for the 1958 feature It Happened in Broad Daylight, this is actually the fourth version of the story. It was remade by Alberto Negrin in 1979 as La Promessa and in 1996 by Rudolf Vandenberg as The Cold Light of Day, starring Richard E. Grant. But none of the previous versions has what Penn and Nicholson bring to the pledge, an almost merciless focus on the weight of the mission and the toll it takes on the man who accepts it. What does it really mean when someone vows never to rest until justice is done? This is someone else's movie. You know, you go through a number of options in your mind, and and there's movies that sort of hit you like a ton of bricks when you were very young. And and then I just thought, you know, of of movies that are sort of under the radar uh, uh, that that resonated. And uh, the reason. I circle back to the pledge is uh, Sean Penn. It's his third um, movie that he directed. Mm -hmm. And uh, he is so committed to the movie he wants to make and um, insistent on its tone. Uh, the, The movie is deceptive in that it has a sort of trappings and tropes of uh, police procedural but it's got a very kind of um, European tone to it in that he uses music he uses um, imagery he uses slow motion and he's committed to a character study really in this movie so that you not only have the the pleasure of following a thriller and he succeeds in that, in my opinion. You also have a, a terrific performance by Jack Nicholson, uh, who, you know, um, it's there's no kind of showboating and tricks involved. Uh, he's just unadorned and pretty straight up. And, um, and I think Sean Penn just drew a, an amazing performance from him in it and the movie the movie does have a vibe it's got a real um vibe to it that is uh, from the music he uses the the pacing he slows it down uh and it's not in a hurry to go anywhere but for me i i found it compelling and it and, and he he also has um a supporting cast that is yeah. killer. Yeah, um, it's a deep bench. Yeah, uh, Mickey Rourke, Sam Shepard, 
Aaron Eckhart, Patricia Clarkson, Vanessa Redgrave, um, Helen Mirren. Yeah, Tom Noonan's in there somewhere. Tom Noonan. Robin Wright Penn, of course. Robin Robin, Robin Wright is fantastic in it. Yeah. And uh, so... It's actually a beautiful film to watch visually. It's it's quite masterful. Yeah. I, I I find. I don't know. You, you you've seen everything. <laughs> what was what do you recall of it? And did you like it when it? I came did. Out? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I think. Well, I saw it in. Uh, I think I saw it in. I know I saw it at the Warner Brothers screening room, which was at the time was all the way up at the, the Young Street in the 401 in the middle of the, the old Warner offices, which you had to take the subway and then walk a good 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. This was a December awards consideration screening, so it was miserably cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see, to, to, to get to that theater, which was a little tiny room with 30 people and, and see all the other critics sitting there. Yeah. And we got there, and to sit and watch this sun-blasted uh, neo-noir, basically, mm-hmm. was was incredibly jarring. And I remember, I, I liked it a lot, and I remember thinking at the very end that I wish I'd seen it on a bigger screen. Because uh-huh. it was slightly larger than that one, but mm-hmm. not by much, so maybe 160, 180 inches. It was not a big theater. Yeah. Um, and it's... The imagery, I remember it being like profoundly yellowy-orange, like it's going to swallow yeah. you up. The desert image just yeah, just becomes this dominating aesthetic where yeah. after a while, Nicholson's skin starts to look the same color, yeah. and you're, just, you're washed in this bleached, mm-hmm. blasted land. And, and it, it takes place in Nevada, mm-hmm. uh, in basically rural Nevada, largely. I think they might have shot some of it in B.C., Oh yeah, I thought I read that somewhere at some time, uh, but the the movie goes through the seasons, so you get snow, heavy snow. You get early winter. You get Fourth of July. You get Nicholson. He's a big fisherman in this movie, and you, you get him out on the lake. Um, so just just visually, it it is quite stunning and. The cinematographer is Chris Menges? Menges, yeah. Menges who... Uh, I mean, he shot The Killing Fields. He's the Mission. A, the Mission. He's a director in his own right these he's days. He's a director in his own right. And, and another movie that he shot, that uh, another actor-directed movie that is, I think, very accomplished, is uh, Three Burials of Estrada. Uh, es- Estrada, yeah. Did yeah. He, he shot that as well. He shot that. I didn't know that. Yeah, he shot that. Uh, and that's... That's another beautifully shot movie that is very much actor driven and mm-hmm. story driven. And you know, I'm I'm a sucker for character driven uh, movies, and I, I really, uh, you know, I like to see the whole the whole uh, caboodle in a movie, like <laughs> anyone else. But I'll see a flawed movie with great performances any day of the week. Yeah. Because um, there's 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 great artistry in in the different different aspects of any movie, and it's very rare to get them all to add up. Yeah. So if you can get some flashes in in movies, and and uh, you know, good actors, great actors, in the right part, 
can, as you know, salvage a movie. And this is not a movie that needs to be salvaged. It's it's a very good movie. Um, but again, Jack Nicholson, in, in some ways it's a, a retirement crisis movie. Yeah. And he, um, it kind of moves towards, there's a lucidity. Uh, just the basic nuts and bolts of the story are... Sure. Uh, he's on the he's retiring and and literally at his retirement party um he f- there's um an abduction rape and murder of a 10-year-old girl uh in his district and you know his superiors want him to enjoy the retirement party but he is uh, compelled to go to the scene of the crime he becomes obsessed with this case and he promises the dead girl's mother played by Patricia Clarkson that uh, he swears swears to God because mm-hmm. she insists on that 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 he will solve and find the killer of, of her daughter and um, so that seed is planted in him and uh, he's retiring and he's you know, he loves fishing and he's trying to find some balance in his life. He ends up buying a, a, a sort of broken down gas station, um, fishing supply shop. Well, because it's at the nexus of the three, uh, exactly. the three abductions. Exactly. He's, yeah, as you say, he's consumed by this case. Yeah. To the point where it, it consumes him right back. Yeah. He, his, um, his plan is to, although it's never articulated... Because this isn't a guy who talks mm-hmm. about his, his plans. His inner monologue is just a stare, as far as we can tell. Just this yeah. blank stare of, of the thing that Nicholson does so well, which is just turn himself off yeah, and, and brood. Yes. Uh, which became caricatured in the 90s, and then he got back to this. This, yeah. this one was sort of the, yeah. the reminder that Nicholson can be a, a serious actor, if you like. Uh, absolutely. Like, I think about yeah. The Passenger a lot, in comparison. Yeah. The mm-hmm. two, two hollowed-out mm-hmm. people who are just searching yeah. for purpose. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he buys the gas station and fishing uh, bait store to wait. Buys it from Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah, another yeah. tiny little cameo of, yeah. of perfect choice. And what's beautiful about it is in buying the gas station, he also meets Robin Wright, and they end up having uh, a, a, a quite a lovely relationship. Mm. And he becomes um, a, a great father figure to She's a single mom. So she's a single mom with a ten-year-old. He was ten-year-old, yeah. And exactly so that's like the other victims. Yeah, and but he, he's making great attempts to normalize his life and to find some kind of satisfaction in in owning this this gas station and having a loving relationship. Um, mm-hmm. Unless, and, uh, yeah, unless, but the obsession is still within him, and without giving away. What transpires, we can talk about. We well, yeah, yeah. I mean, we sort of have to. But where he goes psychologically is, is sort of a derangement of the soul. Yeah, I mean, the the film yeah. makes a pretty solid case that consciously or unconsciously, and I think consciously, he's using the situation as bait. He's mm-hmm. hoping that this girl lures the killer. I don't think yeah. he's hoping that she gets abducted. Yeah, but he's trying to be there so he mm-hmm. can stop the next one. And yeah. And that, the waiting game that, that ensues where some part of him has to be 
a family man like this this yeah. this person he has never been but but yeah. clearly always wanted to be i don't yeah. think he's faking any of it no but i do think he puts himself in a position where yeah. doing this doing this thing uh it gives him an opportunity to have a life yeah but it's all like it's fruit of the poison tree it's yeah, all yeah. rooted in this obsession and he gets so uh psychically undressed by robin wright when she finds out yeah. that he's used his daughter as bait to catch the killer. Yeah, she when sees him. She you see him unable to respond to any of her questions and the look in his eyes. And he, uh, uh, I was reminded of uh, The Shining. Okay. Uh, some of those bar scenes where he's just elsewhere. Um, but... No one really gets into that detached nether space in the way that that he can. There's, there's, I, I don't know how he uh, sources that, but it doesn't take much, and it's just a very no punches pulled performance. Yeah, and there's still some of the old charm at yeah. times, you know, from him. Uh, but, but it's. It's such a beautifully calibrated movie and performance. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ebert at the time wrote about it uh, and and liked it a lot and focused a lot on what the film says about Nicholson refusing to be put out to pasture, how he's literally mm-hmm. being shoved out the door when this murder happens, and mm-hmm. he uh, Ebert's theory is that he holds on to it as a way to re- to remain valid, to mm-hmm. to still be a man because there's mm-hmm. that there's that whole yeah. masculinity thing. And then when he revisited it a few years later in a great movies essay, he was fixating on how Sean Penn's film interrogates, all of his films interrogate masculinity on mm-hmm. some level. Yeah. That, uh, you know, the Indian runner is about brothers and one, mm-hmm. who's, one who's responsible for the other. Uh, the crossing guard is about a man, Nicholson again, yeah. trying to yeah. avenge his daughter's death, but not really mm-hmm. for that reason. He yeah. just wants to do violence to the man who did violence to him. Mm-hmm. Um and then this comes along, and then the next one was uh, Into the Wild. It's a true story of a man, a young man who went off into the wilderness mm-hmm. to live and died instead. Mm-hmm. And how all of these films are sort of at odds with the idea of what it is to be a man in the modern age, because Penn, you know, in the 80s, his, he made his whole reputation on being a brawler and being, you know, punching yeah. photographers and, you know, like quasi. Uh, macho things that were yeah. perceived as heavily masculine, and how his, and his movies all seem to be interrogating those and trying to figure out what what's right and what's wrong, yeah. what works and what doesn't. Yeah, and the pledge is the only one that centers on age, uh-huh. right? That centers on being an older type of masculinity mm-hmm. uh, and and how that works in the present. And everybody else is very cynical and and yeah. You know, um, Nicholson's character uh, constantly insists on nobility, on, on doing the mm-hmm. right thing, and mm-hmm. how no one else will. And mm-hmm. even if it comes down to following procedure and the interrogation with Benicio del Toro, another mm-hmm. there you go, yeah, I forgot, yeah, yeah. no, yeah. I, I just remembered that now. This too, yeah. the second, it's like, oh yeah, he's in that too. Um, yeah. But the whole point of that scene is that um, his replacement, Nicholson's replacement, is played by Aaron Eckhart, mm-hmm. is badgering and luring del Toro, who doesn't have the capacity to understand what's going on let alone to confess to murder Mm -hmm. but Nicholson gets to sort of watch in horror as this new generation that's only interested in closing the case comes forward and 
his dissatisfaction with he's the way appalled the, by the yeah, interrogation. The way things he says go. He practically blew him because he he actually physically caresses the suspect and is almost on top of him in this kind of weird. Well, it's a seduction, right? Like he's it's a seduction. Confessing. Yeah, it's a seduction. Um, and I'm kind of, you know, if, if you want to talk about tiny little perfect performances, what Eckhart's doing is amazing because he is just, he was in that little tiny pocket where he was playing snakes and heels. Yeah. And he shows us how this guy can appear reasonable, even yeah. as he's completely just blaspheming the concept of justice. Yeah. Yeah. He, he it, sells himself really well. He sells himself really well. And he's, you know, at times he's just such a doofus <laughs> in his job, but he... He inhabits that and and embraces the doofusness of it uh, really well. It's a really really good performance by him too. Yeah, you I don't know, think there's a bad performance. I don't know. There isn't lot, really. Everybody gives exactly what's necessary. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And it, it's interesting what you said about Sean Penn's sort of interrogation of masculinity and. Uh, in in the pledge, Nicholson, as you say, he, he's always noble, and and there's an observation of his vulnerabilities, and you can see him checking at times baser impulses to sort of rise above mm. um, uh, any provocations, and you know in when he uh, becomes a father-like figure to the 10-year-old girl, Robin Wright's daughter. And with Robin Wright, he is uh, exquisitely uh, sensitive to their situation and her situation and does not push or initiate. It's kind of all up to Robin Wright to give him the signals and it's uh it's 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 really it's really lovely um Mm -hmm. lovely and uh i i'm a big fan of sean penn as an actor i've seen indian runner crossing guard and into the wild when people think of sean penn you know they don't think of his directing chops no hardly ever uh and like he he's hugely capable as a director, uh, and I, I'm just curious why we haven't seen him behind the camera more. I think he. I'm going to stop and actually check because I'm pretty sure he made something. Took it to Cannes a couple of years ago with Charlie Theron and Javier Bardem, and it got laughed off the screen. And it's never been released in North America. Yeah, The Last Face, 2016. Charlie Theron plays the director of an international aid agency in Africa who meets a relief aid doctor played by Javier Bardem. Amidst a political social revolution, together they face tough choices surrounding humanitarianism and life through civil unrest. Played at Cannes, has never been seen since. Although it might have opened in the States, oh. it, it's never surfaced in Canada, and as far as I know, it's not on disco. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and it's it's his first directorial effort in ten years. Wow. Um, since since uh, Into the Wild? Since Into the Wild, yeah. And, well, nine years, I guess. And it was written by Aaron Dignam, who wrote Submergence uh, and... Um, is an actor who appeared in The Crossing Guard, of all hmm. things. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. But I haven't, I mean, I haven't seen it. Uh, yeah. I know that the reception was fairly harsh. 
Well, I th- I'm just real- realizing now why he wouldn't be making a lot of movies as a director because the kinds of movies he's made don't get made anymore. Well, yeah, sure. The mid-range... The mid-range... The 20 to $40 million yeah, character-driven American movies. Thriller. I mean, there's so many great movies in that milieu, but it's rare to come across them now uh, because of the way Hollywood has evolved, yeah. if you want to call it that. Yeah, I mean, it was something I was hearing every year at TIFF. People would say, you know, they'd be here with a movie just like that and yeah. say how rare it was. This was the yeah. only chance they had to make a movie like this in two years. Yeah. Uh, because that was once the indie revolution was over about 2004, 2005, and DVD killed the um, theatrical market because mm-hmm. the windows were so tight that people just, movies just didn't have any legs. Mm-hmm. And then that shifted to blockbusters because those were the films that could make all the money back in the first weekend or mm-hmm. in the first three days, mm-hmm. three, four weeks. Uh, yeah, they just, these opportunities just went away. They're still making them, but now they're made with European money or 824. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll, we'll just greenlight three movies. Yeah. Almost, yeah. almost randomly. Yeah. yeah. Or you, you know, like Boots Riley making uh, Sorry to Bother You, you just have to find the most impossible way in to get mm-hmm. the thing funded yeah um but yeah they used to be a dime a dozen they used to come out constantly they were they played theatrically yeah and um you know in the case of the pledge warner brothers distributed it mm-hmm. that's oh no paramount released paramount vantage released into the wild so yeah warner distributing the pledge i think is the only time a major studio mm-hmm. has made a, a sean penn yeah. directed film yeah but yeah there's so much more in them there's so much going on and and you know the older i get the more they appeal to me just because they tend to be focused on human interaction mm-hmm. and, and yeah. basic emotional stakes rather yeah. than you know big yeah. crises and things falling out exactly of the yeah yeah i mean I, I i mean now it's something i'm trying to think of the modern equivalent and maybe sicario sort of counts because it's still a character study wrapped up in a big fantastic machinery. movie yeah, yeah. The first one, I, I yeah, haven't seen the second, I haven't seen the second one either. But, uh, um, but the first one, I saw twice. Yeah. And terrific, terrific performances and excellent filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could see There's it, a right? filmmaker who... Didn't even live, yeah. Yeah, who would have been making all kinds of the movies we're talking about back then and who still may... He is now, but he's wrapping them up in like genre packaging. Yeah. Because Arrival's a, a character piece. Yeah. And, I mean, Blade Runner is too... He's, sure. Like, he's found a way to do it. Yeah. But to do it, he has to pretend he's making yeah. big genre epics. Yeah. And Jean-Marc Vallée... Yes. Yeah. ...is making those kinds of movies. He's doing them as eight-hour TV shows. That's Right. right. That's very good. That's very very good thing. television. Yeah. By the way, and maybe that's it. At all, once once peak TV started, that's where it all went. There is a lot of good things uh, on TV now. That, uh, but you know, the, the great actors, you can see them in an eight ten part yeah series gravitating to it. I just finished Homecoming, and it's um, it's uh-huh. you know basically a five hour miniseries with Julia Roberts and uh, okay. Stephen James and and. Um, uh, Bobby Cannavale and it's it's great it's based on a podcast wow uh, this is what they're doing wow. now like this is where the yeah. dramatic opportunity and it's directed by uh, Sam Esmail who made Mr. Robot yeah and yeah. so it is it feels cinematic and big and yeah. complex but it's still it's got this emotional undercurrent about yeah. relationships through it all yeah yeah I mean there's something about 
compressing an entire narrative into two hours that I find deeply satisfying. It's mm-hmm. you know, it's movies. It's how I was raised. Yeah, yeah. But you could see, like, I could see the pledge now as a sort of broad church like series where every yeah. episode would focus on a different interview. Because absolutely, I, you know, like the like the classic noir structure. Yeah, he's, he's meeting and interviewing people over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, that movie, The Pledge, could be stretched out. But I don't want it to be. Like, that's yeah. the beauty of a film like this is that you get these quick hits of performance and, and these... It's basically like watching a series of, of scene partnerships, yeah. right? Like, it's yeah. Nicholson with this person, Nicholson with that person. Mm-hmm. He's, he's How many times is he in a room with more than two people? Yeah. Almost yeah. never happens. Well, and the, and the template... The template for decades and decades was you are going to build a quilt mm-hmm. which is the movie yeah which is this long and which contains all these textures and qualities and you know we've had amazing results from that now there's there's another template that seems to be um out there and i'm 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 all for it um uh, but if maybe that's the natural reaction to tentpole movies where it's all about the movie in post and CGI and, you know, big action sequences. Mm. Uh, so where are the actors who are not interested in that or are past that going to gravitate to? Why are you going to see them in, in, in some gr- pretty great roles in cable series, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the olden days, you would make a franchise picture so you could get two or three indies made because then you'd suddenly get the international name recognition mm-hmm. to finance them but that doesn't happen anymore apparently no no um, so you get somebody like John C. Riley who's off doing Disney you know rec- yep. Disney voice work and, and Will Ferrell comedies but also producing his own dramatic vehicles like the Sisters, Sisters Brothers, Brothers. Was, so he could work with Jacques Audriard yeah. and all the I actors. saw that a couple nights ago it's great it really is yeah and he's yeah. terrific he's, oh he's terrific he's perfect He's perfect. Uh, they're both great. Yeah. Uh, it's a very, very solid movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love the book. Yeah. It's I, very different from the book, isn't it? It's very different from funnier. the book. The book's a lot funnier. You're, yeah. you're actually laughing and chuckling to yourself constantly reading that book. The movie's a different animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I still think really, really worthy. Yeah. And yeah. in a weird way, I mean, it, it's got an interrogation of masculinity and what it means to live, you know... Absolutely, as a man of yeah. of, uh, of violence, yeah, in much the same way. Well, mm-hmm. the pledge isn't. I mean, I don't think that. Uh, I don't think that uh, Nicholson has to reckon with his his life the way. I mean, he's forced to in the very end, but he's not constantly thinking about it. It doesn't weigh on him the way it does with the characters in the Sisters Brothers. But no, yeah, watching a man do everything that is ostensibly correct and proper in his work Mm -hmm. and yet wind up betraying both himself and the trust of the people he's supposed to love the most it's just this it's this perfect tragic arc it's you know it's it's all noir fiction Mm -hmm. i don't think of the film in in noir terms but the the narrative structure is you know it's Mm -hmm. a detective story yeah Uh, and it's a detective story with an ironic crushing ending Mm -hmm. because pretty it's ambiguous but i'm pretty sure we are supposed to know that he was right and it didn't matter and mm-hmm. that's like the, mm-hmm. the the thing that haunts me about the best detective fiction is knowing that 
um, and it's not even a quote from a detective novel, but it's it's Casablanca, right? Like all this amounts to a hill of yeah. beans. It's only it's only important to the people involved in it. Yeah, and yeah. he didn't prevent anything. Mm-hmm. It just happened without him. Yeah, um, which is so powerful and so tragic, and and I think the reason the movie because if if you know if you don't stick the landing in these things, it, they dissipate. They just don't mm-hmm. linger. And I just think about the like that haunted hollow emptiness at the very end of, of the pledge and think mm-hmm. this is the only way this story could end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can't have a victory. Yeah. And, and the ending is extraordinary um, because you see the montage of the ending. You actually see it mm-hmm. earlier in the movie, but you... Yeah, we don't you have do all the information. Not, you don't have the information, and and it's a curious thing when it appears earlier as the montage, but it it is, um, it's like a fable. It's like a beautiful fable by the end of the movie, uh, and it's. I should also mention it's based on a short story by a Swiss writer, mm. uh, Frederick Durenmatt. Yeah, I was not familiar with yeah, with any of it. Yeah. It feels very. I mean, maybe that's it. It feels very European in its in its approach and the sort of the elliptical yeah. nature of yeah. morality. Yeah, and the way people's lives drift in and out. We're not used to seeing that in a lot of American filmmaking. No, but but somehow with that, um, you know that that impulse from that from that European sensibility, it's got a very American. He's he's he stuck it in, uh, you know, a Nevada police uh, station, and those guys—they all feel real American. There's a Fourth of July parade in it. Mm. There's a flea market. There's there's some, uh, there's there's a, a local bar. There's the gas station. There's all these hyper identifiable um, marks of American culture in it. And yet, it's the reason. The reason I like the movie is is he elevates it all, and he mixes it up, and he surprises. Yeah, the storytelling. No, there's no condescension to the American iconography that he's using. Nope. I think he's he really does believe in it. Yeah. As, it, as it appears, it's yeah. You know the, the sort of clean scrubbed American town where awful things are lurking underneath, but it, the town itself. Is about innocence and not know simply not yeah. knowing what's going on. Yeah, because as we see, the police are working to keep it that way. Yeah, because they're just solving crimes that aren't really solved yeah. and, and yeah. denying reality, yeah. so everybody else can feel safe. Yeah, and it's funny, you know. I um, as I was trying to think of a movie, uh, there are a few different movies, sort of left field movies I thought about one of them was Tomorrow this Robert Duvall movie uh, from 1972 I believe the same year that he did The Godfather or before it's a black and white movie that actually played at TIFF in the 80s early 80s when they were still using the Bloor Cinema and he plays a simple um, hillbilly basically who um, I I think uh, ends up in a murder trial in this small southern community, uh, 
but it's also a love story and and it's simply told and his his performance is so extraordinary and it's 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 a rural movie the screenplay was written by horton foot okay yeah um but i'm a sucker for that long line of uh wonderful american actors and actresses uh, who we associate from 70s and 80s, 90s movies, Robert Duvall, Sissy Spacek, Tommy Lee Jones, um, Pacino, De Niro. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Raging Bull as a movie. Sure. Um, but I like movies that have fabulous, honest performances that uh, actors really inhabit. And, I mean, Sean Penn's one of those actors for me, and it doesn't surprise me that in his movies, the performers he draws and the performances he gets out of his actors are just that. Yeah. Um, He is a really generous director. He just seems to savor performance. Yeah. And let people own the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of character-driven movies... Sure. (laughs) The Drawer Boy. You can get to it, yeah. Yeah. Well, it is, I mean, yeah. It's It's a great story. It's relevant, too. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Yeah, this is a movie that um, was adapted from Michael Healy's um, oft-produced play, The Drawer Boy, uh, which was written, I think, in the late 90s, and um, I think was one of the most produced plays in the United States and Canada for... A number of years um, it's been performed all over the world and uh, Aviva Armour Ostroff and her partner Arturo Perez Torres adapted and co-directed this movie a couple years ago and it's just finishing up its festival run mm-hmm. now well, we had it at the Canadian Film Festival in Toronto Canadian Film March. Festival and won the best feature there and um, so it opens at the Carlton uh, here in Toronto on November 23rd. It'll be Friday after this episode is released. Okay, This excellent. is coming out on the Tuesday, just before it. Yeah, and um, it's it's basically a, th- a three-character movie. Uh, a great, you know, myself, Stuart Hughes, and Jacob Eamon are um, the three principals in it. And... Uh, it's a, it's a great story just from a writing and, and, and um, plot point of view, but it also gives us as actors uh, a great opportunity to explore so many different um, ranges in, in what's there in the writing. Uh, and it, it's there's simplicity and an accessibility to it that I know my family, both my parents are from farms and I know that all my relatives, whether they're farmers or um, tradespeople or whatever, they can sit down and they can watch this movie and they can appreciate it because they'll see story, they'll see performances, they'll see heart and soul 
and uh, they'll also see artfulness in it and and male vulnerability as mm-hmm. well um, because in the movie my character Morgan uh, is basically the main caregiver of his childhood friend Angus uh, who suffered a, a war injury in World War II the movie set in around 1970 and so there's there's a great um, uh, sort of assumed compassion between the two because they're farmers they're not showing right. too much there's but there's great uh a care between the two of them each is the primary relationship in in each other's life and then jacob eman's character um shows up uh and uh throws a wrench into the works um but uh, it, it, as a movie, I, you never know how they're going to end up. You just do your work on the days. Sure. And, and uh, this was a, a movie that was a labor of love for everyone and low budget. And, and we were on location the whole time in the southwest Ontario farm country. Uh, but I, I was so impressed with it as as a movie and the work of uh, everyone involved mm-hmm. it's it's a movie that um, if I if I opened up a uh, car dealership tomorrow and that was my last movie I'd go yeah I did that and I'm proud of it alright yeah. I mean is there anything from the pledge that found its way in did you use any because this, this is always sort of the way we try yeah. to get out of the episode is there something that resonated the the film is I mean both films are kind of about isolation yeah in a way but mm-hmm. I don't really know that the tones are the same um nothing that I I would isolation yeah. and dedication I suppose pardon me uh, isolation and dedication I, I suppose yeah about that isolation and dedication um I mean, thinking of my character, Morgan, and Jack Nicholson's character, mm. there's there's a dedication and an obsession to um, trying to keep a lid on on a relationship. Uh, that I have with with uh, Angus Stewart Hughes's character that is in danger of, um, you know, falling apart uh, because of the appearance of the the, the other character in our story. Um, I don't know. I can't. I, I'm just bullshitting right now. Yeah, no, I can't I think of any connection other than I knew that in 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 playing this farmer who had a, a deep secret that I didn't have to be likable mm-hmm. that there there had to be an edge to him and a a fearsome quality to him to guard his secret from anyone who might want to move in on the relationship I have with uh, Angus and um, 
at the same time, uh, those sort of masculine um, reptilian qualities had to be there in sync with with an extreme sensitivity and and vulnerability to my charge. Mm-hmm. Stuart Hughes's character. Yeah, I I always wonder. I mean, I'm I'm convinced that the selection of the movie and the whole point of this podcast is that the selection of the movie the choice says something about the guest mm-hmm. and so if there's a way to knit it back into the most current work with the work being talked right. about i'm always fascinated by the opportunity yeah. but yeah they're they're just they're very different men ultimately mm-hmm. right i mean they're not it's not a similarity but the just the idea that the this context repeats itself over and over again mm-hmm. in, in drama yeah. is fascinating to me just because of yeah. course it does it's the thing that you know everybody on yeah. some level is obsessed with who you really yeah. are who you what you yeah. really do yeah and what masks we all wear and all that it's yeah. the nature of drama yeah yeah um it is the nature of drama and, and there's uh I don't know. I, I don't. I got nothing more to say about the connection between the drawer boy and the pledge. Yeah, well, other than we're all just reaching. they're 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 just they're they're really actors' movies in some ways, mm. you know. Um, and that that's that's the deepest connection I have with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's certainly a valid one. Well, I, I yeah. didn't get to ask. What was your first encounter with it? When did you see the pledge? Was it theatrically released? Uh, I, I think. I saw it um, after it was theatrically released because I saw The Crossing Guard. And I thought, wow, this is really good. And then I saw The Pledge, I think, on DVD after I didn't see it on the big screen. And then I went back to The Indian Runner, his first feature. Oh, wow, so you did the second Yeah, thing. yeah. Um, but yeah, um, my wife remembers seeing it with me and going oh yeah it's a really good movie as I recall and so you know I, I trust her taste we have very similar tastes and uh, if she said no no not really that good but she said no that was really good <laughs> so I knew I was <laughs> yeah in the right direction she's got your back yeah yeah my thanks to Richard Clarkin, who you can see on screen in The Drawer Boy at Toronto's Carlton Cinema this Friday, November 23rd, and it opens in Calgary November 30th at the Globe Cinema. Thanks also to Winnie Wong. She knows what she did. You can find Richard on Twitter at RichardClarkin1, all one word, and you can find The Pledge on DVD from Warner Home Entertainment. It's currently out of print, but it's not too hard to find used, either on its own or in a couple of Warner's multi-film sets. And you should definitely do that. It's a really good movie. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.